On this week's edition of New York Now, Governor Cuomo announces two nominees to fill vacancies on the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals. And there's an appetite for ethics reform in the legislature, but will there be any movement before session ends in less than two weeks? Zach Williams from City and State and Dave Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room are here to discuss. Then, as gun violence spikes statewide, including in the capital city of Albany, Assemblymember Pat Fahey joins us to talk about legislation aimed at reducing gun violence. And later, we'll tell you about a proposal that would allow for more leniency for people who violate parole and why Democrats support it. I'm Daryl Camp and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Daryl Camp, in for Dan Clark. We now know who is going to be filling two seats on New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals. This week, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced his two picks for the court. Those are Nassau County District Attorney Madeline Singus and Justice Anthony Canataro, the administrative judge of the New York City Civil Court. Singus would be replacing Justice Leslie Stein, who's retiring next month, while Kenataro would be replacing Justice Paul Feynman, who died earlier this year. And at the same time, Cuomo said this week that the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, created by him, is in need of significant change. Here to talk about those stories are Zach Williams from the City and State Magazine and Dave Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So, Dave, I'm going to go to you first. What are people saying about these two appointees? Well, they're not saying much at all about uh, Judge Anthony Canataro, so we're just going to move past him and move to the highlight, which is Nassau County District Attorney Madeline Singus. Uh, she is someone people know largely because of her role uh, looking into Eric Schneiderman at the behest of Governor Andrew Cuomo, and we heard some real pushback against her from liberals in New York, especially the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association of New York State, who say right now someone like her with her background and her focus on putting people away as opposed to, say, you know, restorative justice or more progressive criminal justice issues, she's not the right person. And, uh, you know, normally we see this process, the Senate confirmation of judges as a real rubber stamp in New York. Maybe, maybe, maybe. There's a little pushback against her, but, you know, we'll have to see in the final two weeks of the legislative session. So I'm curious, Zach, do you think there's going to be pushback because the person who appointed these two appointees is in a lot of hot water right now? You know, time is running out. The state Senate only has until June 10th to approve this this year. The key date is really August 2nd. If um, Singus gets appointed by that date and resigns as DA, that would trigger a special election to replace her by November. And it's always election time at city and state. Everyone's looking at State Senator Todd Kaminsky, who might be interested. A spokesperson for him didn't exactly say he ruled out a run. Um, and I'm also curious, per Dave's comments, what the political left might put up if a special election is triggered, if all these dominoes uh, fall in time to trigger that special election. Well, so, and, and, yeah. and just hanging over all of this is the fact that, you know, potentially further down the road, if there's ever a trial to remove Governor Andrew Cuomo from office, these two appointees, if they're confirmed and take the bench in time, could potentially serve on a trial that would be about removing the governor from office. So there's that interesting conflict. And, and whether the Senate even wants to confirm something, anyone from the governor who they are saying, you know, a majority of Democrats say should resign. 
So another major issue that's going on right now is ethics reform. It has always been a major topic in New York because of the perception of incessant corruption here. Perception? Perception, yeah, <laughs> I should say. The evidence, the, yeah. the proof's in the pudding. But uh, the Senate moved on that this week, and the Assembly didn't exactly. Zach, I want to go to you first on this one. What exactly happened as far as ethics reform goes? I mean, I think we're just seeing that the two chambers going their separate way. The state Senate has really moved forward, which one might say is maybe trying to prod the assembly to do the same. But I think the, if we're talking about replacing Jay Cope in a definitive way, it's going to probably take until next year. There's a constitutional amendment that's been proposed, but it's been kind of going through the works. Actually, one of the key reasons why it hasn't passed was exactly how was determining how it would deal with sexual harassment allegations against um, people in the executive branch in the future. There's so many different things that have to be figured out to set up a new public integrity commission um, who would appoint it or appoint its members and exactly who would be able to investigate still remains very much up in the air, but it would take a constitutional amendment to really definitively replace Jacob, and that means it would have to pass the um, legislature this year and then in the next legislature and then go before the voters that following November. Now, Dave, something that I found interesting was what the governor said about Jacob. I think Zach Fink had asked him about it at a press conference and he went on like a three to five minute rant about how it's essentially useless. What was your take on that? Why do you think he took that position? I think he used the, the term and it was meaningless is the one he threw out there, and uh, I, which is hilarious because this is a body that he created 10 years ago with the help of the legislative leaders at the time, both of whom uh, have now gone to jail for corruption. And I, I think he's just sort of throwing out some terms right now because it's popular. I mean, there's nothing wrong with him saying, yeah, we need to reform Jacob. He's not going to be lifting a finger to do anything about it because right now Jacob upholds the status quo in Albany. And that's good for him. That's good for the legislative leaders, who I also don't think have a huge amount of interest in reforming this, this body. And the only people who have to be afraid of Jacob are people who are already on their way out. They don't, you know, no case has ever been brought by Jacob that's like, Wow, they're going after this person. It's wow, that person like is resigning right now, and oh, Jacob's going after them. That's great. So I think the governor was basically just feeling a little on the defensive, and you know, he's sometimes uh, seen as the person holding up Jacob. So I think he just felt like you know, I'll just throw out some word salad. And, and it's interesting that you you mentioned the legislative leader's role in this. Cuomo loves to point out, and I believe he did the other day, that, well, if they want to replace it, then they got to replace it in a way where people can investigate them. Obviously, it's the legislators' fault that nothing has changed, not me, the governor, that established this way back when with the legislative leaders at that time. Speaking of ethics and the governor, I'll toss this to you first, Zach. Uh, I didn't pass the bar, but I know a little bit, and everybody's public opinion is that the lawyers are the ones who always win when it comes to any legal action. <laughs> so, that being said, we got a bit of an update, if you want to call it that, on the impeachment probe, and the update was about money, for the most part. That was the big headline. What are we getting? Well, the Assembly Judiciary Committee has faced some criticism for a supposed $250,000 cap on the money allocated to hire outside lawyers to investigate the governor. Thank goodness, poor lawyers alert, their help is on the way. Judiciary Chair Charles Levine said that this cap isn't, it is a cap, but you can have many caps. And there could be another cap that is above that $250,000. So more money is on the way. 
more lawyers can cash in on this. But I, I, in all seriousness, I think the big thing is, you know, you have to balance the need to have a serious investigation with the need to be quick enough so that the public just doesn't lose interest in this. You know, there's a lot of criticism on Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty for kind of carrying the governor's water on this slow walking investigation that may or may not conclude anytime soon. Meanwhile, we have the Attorney General's investigation of the governor, federal investigation, so many investigations, and people just want to make sure that the impeachment investigation is moving in a prompt fashion that could lead to a possible impeachment and removal of the governor pending the trial with uh, impeachment trial. But that so many moving parts, people just want the assembly to get going. Dave, I'm curious, how much could we end up spending as taxpayers on this probe? Well, if you play out the string the way Chuck Levine has envisioned, in which he thinks there's a potential for this investigation to take months, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I think that the assembly process is going to be accelerated in June when I think we're going to finally get at least an interim report from the attorney general's investigation. And I think that's going to really set the agenda. And if things don't move from there, then I guess we could see potentially the assembly taking its sweet time and spending, you know, 750000 a million dollars. But I think this whole situation, the whole dynamic is going to really change in two to three weeks. And I think the update was they spoke to five additional people compared to the previous update, and they had only received maybe uh, less than 100 additional tips. So it seems like it's slowing down on that front. Uh, just one more thing. The Senate acted on sexual harassment this week. Is that significant? It's significant if the assembly follows suit and we actually have some laws. But right now, they're just one house press releases. Okay, and Zach, your position on that? I think the assembly showed that it's not going to be moving quick on this. The speaker did appoint a new task force to discuss sexual Woo. harassment reforms. That's Albany speak for we're not going to do it now, we're going to do it later. All right. We have Dave, we've got Zach. I appreciate both of you for being here. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. So, over the past week, the police department in New York's capital city of Albany has reported three gun-related homicides and a total of at least nine shooting victims all over the span of just a few days. Increases in gun violence are something that law enforcement tends to expect as the weather gets warmer, but they say that's no reason to stop prevention efforts. Assemblymember Pat Fahey, who represents parts of Albany, tells New York Now that a piece of legislation sponsored by her and Senator Zelnor Myrie could help minimize gun violence by holding gun manufacturers accountable. We spoke about that measure and how it would work. I am sitting down with Assemblymember Pat Fahey. Last month, you had mentioned that you were sponsoring, co-sponsoring legislation with Zelnor Myrie concerning gun violence and specifically as it relates to this area, but this bill obviously would affect the entire state. What exactly is the measure that you're co-sponsoring and how would that help prevent gun violence? It's a, a new bill uh, trying to carve a new path and going after gun violence by addressing some of the gun safety measures and really opening up this door to hold gun manufacturers and distributors civilly liable. This has been tried for many years. They uh, received uh, federal protections about 15 years ago, a federal immunity, but we think we've carved a new path here uh, to begin to go after those manufacturers because we know that New York has probably the toughest gun laws in the country, yet we still have way too much gun violence. So we think if the manufacturers are held more accountable for better safety features, 
We can see the same kind of progress as we've seen with safety in cars, safety on phones, and uh, security of access. If I took your phone uh, today, I couldn't get into your phone. You couldn't get into mine without the proper thumbprint. Why not do the same for guns? So what exactly motivated this? Well, <laughs> what motivates this has been a 30-year motivation for me. I, uh, I support every appropriate uh, gun owner to who, you know, we have many law-abiding gun owners, but we still have way too much gun violence, especially with handguns. And even though New York has the single strongest gun laws, gun protections in the country, we still have an iron pipeline coming right up I-95, especially from Virginia and other states that have looser gun laws. The, the last statistic I saw, 74% of gun crimes are still committed with guns coming in from out of state. Now, what does gun violence look like in the 109th district? Gun violence is everywhere. I, I personally live in Albany. I'm a proud Albany resident. My children went to the Albany public schools. And as you know, as most urban areas around the country, we have seen increased violence uh, since COVID. It, when I say gun violence, I also mean gun suicides. Uh, and, and domestic violence. When a gun is in the home, we know a woman is more, and there's, and there's domestic violence, a woman is much more likely to be killed in those incidences when a gun is that accessible. So it's not just gun violence that we may read about in the streets. This is gun violence in the home with domestic violence, suicide, and more. So specifically as it relates to this measure, front to back, how do you start litigation and how does that end? How long is that process? Can you just walk me through, if this were to pass, how a regular person would take advantage of this law? Well, this is, uh, it, it does not address the criminal piece, right? So let's say um, in, uh, in the most recent case here in Troy, a horrific uh, incident where uh, a child was killed in a drive-by shooting, uh, sorry, paralyzed with a drive-by shooting. Uh, the, the perpetrator has not been found, but the gun has been found. Uh, in this case, even though there may not be a criminal case because the perpetrator hasn't been found, the fact that that gun did not have safety measures, the fact that it may have been originally owned or bought out of state and, and yet was readily accessible to other uh, to anybody who acquired it, uh, the gun manufacturer could be held liable for not having appropriate safety measures on that gun. And as, and as you've seen with car safety seats, with um, cars, we know it's, it's not just, while well, reckless drivers in a car may be held accountable or drunk drivers may be held accountable, if a manufacturer has a faulty mechanism, faulty um, uh, safety seats in there, uh, faulty seat belts or uh, airbags, they can be held accountable. It's a similar type of approach here. What exactly determines, though, the appropriate measures for a gun? Because it's different from a stroller or even a vehicle. Those things are not meant to be dangerous. Guns are weapons. So when you say common sense measures or some sort of accountability, what exactly is it that would take away the uh, reckless nature of, of gun distribution? It could be a variety. That's a good point, And it could be a variety of measures. Some the my favorite is the fact that on my phone, if I lost my phone tomorrow, somebody cannot access my phone. My phone is not a weapon, of course, uh, but the fact that it has a thumbprint code on it 
no one can access it. If we had the same with guns, when they were coming up that iron pipeline or being sold at, at gun shows and end up here in New York, despite all the gun uh, safety measures that we have, uh, no one could use that unless the original owner transferred title and we knew who the title was, uh, the, just as you do with a car, you transfer title to get the, the keys to a car or get the, uh, get the access to a cell phone. It would be the, the same type of approach, but maybe it's a thumbprint. Uh, I, I do think that you are going to run into resistance from Republicans. That's kind of obvious, yes. but they are in the minorities in both houses. You're a part of a supermajority right now, so functionally, when it comes to passing this, the only thing you really need to be concerned about is whether or not members of your party are going to resist this. Can you take the temperature of the assembly right now as it relates to this measure? Well, kudos to the speaker, kudos to the assembly and, and the state senate. Uh, again, I'm so proud to be a part of a, a body that has been so aggressive on gun controls and gun safety. I'm the one that sponsored the bill a few years ago on bump stocks to make sure that they were could not be manufactured, distributed, or sold. And I think New York has led the country in trying to address gun violence and increase gun safety, this is a new path forward trying to go after the manufacturers and distributors because as aggressive as New York has been, we still have way too much violence. And as I'm coming to a close here, just on the devil's advocate side once again, do you think there's a mixed message coming from the legislature when you have something like this that is sort of... Um, a very original measure, we'll say. It's not, there's no precedent for it. When you have something kind of abstract like this being proposed and you have something like criminal justice reforms that are sort of creating amnesty for people who may be involved in that activity, is that sort of counterproductive to the goal that you're presenting here when it comes to gun violence specifically? Uh, no, we, we actually think that this could be so far-reaching. I'm, I'm excited to work with Senator Myrie on this. Um, he, he had the original bill and I jumped on it to work with him in the, uh, he's got it in the Senate, I have it in the Assembly. I think this could open a whole new path forward because as much work has been done, we know there's always loopholes, so we have to be aggressive, right? There's, there's also pending ghost gun uh, legislation because there's, there's been so many inroads and we have to just keep closing those. But we also know, regardless of how aggressive we have been, the manufacturers are not taking enough responsibility. We, we are trying to be respectful of legitimate gun rights, but we're saying more can be done on safety. All right, thank you, Assembly Member. That's all I had. Okay, thank you. With more than 100 people shot in the city of Albany last year and more than 15 people murdered, officials on all levels of government are looking for ways to avoid a repeat of last year's tragedies. So we'll see where that bill goes in the coming weeks. But moving on now. On last week's New York Now, we talked about a proposal called Clean Slate that would automatically expunge the criminal records of certain people after they finished parole. But how hard is it, exactly, to finish parole? Assemblymember Ferris Affront Forrest says that it can be incredibly difficult if someone is punished for minor technical violations, which could land them back in prison. Forrest spoke to our own Dan Clark about her proposal to stop those issues from holding someone back. Assemblymember Ferris Affront Forrest, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. 
Of course, anytime. So parole reform is turning out to be one of the big issues for the end of this year's legislative session. There's a lot of bills on the table like elder parole, fair and timely parole. But I want to talk to you about a bill that you sponsor that we haven't really heard that much about, but it's been around for a couple of years. It's called Less is More. And basically what it would do is it would make it so technical violations of parole wouldn't send somebody back to prison in most cases. Can you explain a little bit about what the bill would do in a little bit more detail than I laid it out? Right. Um, so this bill, Less is More, is a really a bill that looks at the criminal justice system, looks at the incarceration system, and really tries to turn it upside down in a way where we're not in, we're not penalizing people, but rather incentivizing. That's the root of the bill. Um, this bill eliminates the excessiveness of technical violations. I mean, we're sending back people to prison for things like missing a curfew because the train was late or they missed an appointment, but really trying to incentivize people to behave well while on parole and to give them credits, earn time credits, so that way both the parole officer and the parolee feel like they're working towards a substantial goal. So you mentioned a few of them, and I think that people just may not know what parole violations are in terms of the technical ones that we're talking about. Can you go through a few of them just so people are familiar with what people are being hit with right now and being sent back to prison under the current law? Mm -hmm. um, the technical violations that we're trying to um, eliminate the reasons why people would go back to prison for is violations such as showing up to a curfew, showing up late to an appointment with your parole officer, curfews, right? If you're out 30 minutes extra, you'll be going back to jail for that. Um, also things like drinking alcohol, which is not a crime for you and I, but for a parolee, yes, that is a big deal. Um, and there are other minor infractions that, you know, when you're looking at someone who had a 10, 5, 15 year bid, getting to somewhere on time could be a little bit more difficult than, let's just say, you and I. So that leads me to my next question, which is people, as I mentioned, just may not be familiar with why this is important and why people care about it. Can you explain the purpose of the bill in terms of how is it going to impact people? How will this help people? Yes, less is more is very impactful. Less is more would mean that we have an immediate impact on a population of 35,000 people who are currently on parole in New York. Um, we would also have people back in their communities um, helping out their families, working in jobs. And then also when we look at the impact on the state, we're talking about $680 million spent um, shuttling parolees in and out of the prison system. Um, that could be a, a county out in Long Island, that's like about $14 million. So when we talk about a, a bill like this, we're talking about a financially, a fiscally responsive bill, but then a, a restorative bill, a, a bill that really is about rehabilitation. I imagine that people that would be opposed to this bill would say something along the lines of, 
if somebody doesn't want to go back to prison, they just shouldn't commit these technical violations or any violation of parole. What would you say to them? I think that for someone who sees the criminal justice system as um, a punishment, would say that, but when we take somebody into the criminal justice system, we're saying that there is hope for them, that they they can have a second chance. And so when we build up a system where people are given second chances um, at being who we think that, you know, citizens that are upstanding, this bill does that. It says that we're going to give you a second chance and we're going to allow you to be human and we're going to open up opportunities for you to learn and grow versus just penalize you with more time behind bars. So this is not a new bill. It's been floating around the legislature for a few years. What do you think needs to happen to get more of your colleagues on board and get across the finish line by the end of this year's session? I think my colleagues really need to understand that this bill needs to happen right now. Right now, because we have four people who died in um, at Rikers because of technical violations. That means that before they were even convicted uh, or, or even hearing about whether they committed a new crime, they died, right? But then also, this is how we keep money in our communities. We reinvest that money, that $680 million to things that, projects that we actually need. So, um, by supporting this bill, you're actually supporting the very communities that you represent. All right, Assemblymember Ferris of Front Forest, thank you so much for being here, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Parole reform is expected to be a top issue in the last few weeks of session, so that's just one of several bills we'll be keeping an eye on. And if something happens, don't forget that we have updates from the state capitol every day on our website. That's at nynow.org, but we have to leave it there. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.